Our scripture this morning comes to us from 1 John 3, 1 through 7. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. What we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is, and all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who commits sin is guilty of lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he was revealed to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Everyone who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Andrew, and thank you, Inspirations and Chancel Choir, for the, for the outstanding music. For today and for the remainder of the Easter season, I will be speaking or preaching from 1 John, a book that I have not spent a whole lot of time with over these past four decades. So to refresh my memory and perhaps some of your memories, we will, we will work through, we will walk through 1 John. Let me spend a few moments saying a few things about this letter, this sermon of 1 John. We talked about that some last week, but to... Uh, to catch us up, First John is called a letter, but it has few of the features of a letter. It's more like a sermon. Some have called it a religious tract. You might remember in our day when people used to leave these little tracts around with passages of scripture and short messages in them. Some say that First John was one of the original early tracts in the church. Now, clearly the document addresses a congregation that has suffered a division among its members. Some of the things in First John aren't so clear, but the author seeks to reassure the readers of this that they are the faithful ones and that those who have separated from the congregation are in error. The group of separatists, as they are often called, may have left the congregation voluntarily or they may have been expelled. We don't hear much about that in our day and time, folks being expelled from the church. There was a day, there was a time. But the group of separatists may have left voluntarily, they may have been expelled, but their identification remains unknown. We just don't know much about them. From what the author says about them, it seems that they had reservations about believing that Jesus the Christ had actually come in the flesh. That was something they they couldn't grasp or wouldn't grasp. They held a different view of genuine love from the one espoused by the author of this letter. And they claimed to be free from sin. That's a bold claim for any of us to make, isn't it? To say that we're free from sin, that we've not sinned, that we no longer sin. Because these separatists held views of morality in Christ that are like those of Gnostic Christians, and you may have heard the term, the spiritually elite or sort back in the day when this was written. 
Those who had difficulty accepting Jesus as having come in the flesh, a spiritual kind of thing and an elitist kind of thing. And there's much that could be said about that, but it's one of those things that's hard to get a get a real grasp on who the, who the Gnostics were. But some believe that the separatists of 1 John were a branch of, they were a part of these Gnostic movements that were prevalent in that day. Whenever the separatists were, whoever they were, 1 John represents, and I like this, 1 John represents one side of a family quarrel. So that's one way we can read it and, and get an understanding, get a handle on what the writer is uh, trying to say to us, even in our time. Arrhenius was the first to mention 1 John, and he did so in the context of his attack on the Gnostics, the Gnostic Christians. And by the 4th century, the document was regarded as one of the accepted books of Scripture and was often attributed to John, the apostle, and the author of the Gospel of John, or the community that John was a part of that gospel came came out of. Now, some folks think that there were separate authors. Others say, no, that it was John both times, that maybe 1 John was written later, as much as 10 years later from the gospel of John. All of these things help us to get some kind of an idea about, about what's going on here. But like the gospel, It needs to be associated with Ephesus, and Ephesus is the place where tradition says that John carried out and lived out his ministry. And some folks say that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was buried in Ephesus because you remember how Jesus from the cross asked John to care for his mother. And if John indeed went to Ephesus and lived out his ministry there, then we assume that Mary went with him, and she may well have been buried in Ephesus. Now the assumption that First John is related to the gospel brought about the conclusion that like the gospel, it should be associated with Ephesus, it should be associated with the way John lived out his ministry. Now the similarities between the gospel of John and First John are striking. The vocabulary of both documents is very much alike. And sometimes that's used to distinguish who the writers were of a particular biblical book. What kind of expressions did they use? What was their style of writing? Was it the same here as it is here? And if not, maybe there were different authors. But there are some great similarities here. And uh, that helps us to understand what's going on. The differences and similarities may have to do with a different set of circumstances. When the Gospel of John was written and when the first letter of John were written, there were different things going on in the church and in the world. And that would shape the way that John shaped his, not letter so much as his sermon of 1 John. Now the major themes of 1 John, and there are many, but they're Major ones are Christ coming incarnate in the flesh, which the Gnostics and others had a hard time with, God's saving work, God's love, and the love that was to be shared among the members of the Christian community, how the church was to love and support and care for one another, the nature of Christian morality, and the Christian's relationship with sin, and then the imminence of the last days or the latter days, the end times. All these themes are alluded to and spoken to to some extent in this letter of First John. 
Now the Jerusalem Bible translates the opening passage of our passage like this. Think of the love that the Father has lavished on us by letting us be called God's children. And that is what we are. Now I kept reading this sentence over and over and thinking about it and thinking about that word lavish and how God's love was lavished on us and the story from the gospels of the woman who anointed Jesus, you remember, with that expensive perfume, that ointment. That story came to mind. It's in Matthew and Mark and in John as well. And do you remember the response of the disciples? (laughs) Why all this waste? See what love the Father has given us, that his love would be lavished on us. Not wasteful, was it? I try to imagine the council of angels in heaven asking God indignantly, why this waste? Your only son, broken on a cross, love poured out lavishly, And many of those folks will never hear it. And many more will never respond to it with joy and and gratitude. If that's the way the angels reacted by some stretch of the imagination, aren't you glad God did not change God's mind and chose to pour out that love on us? See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. As children, we have some vague notion of our relationship to our parents, but it becomes more concrete as we grow older, and even more so when we become parents. We begin to understand that relationship and the significance of it. Yet as undefined and elegant understanding is, it's no less real and meaningful. In some kind of simple fashion or similar fashion, our text for this morning projects our relationship as children of God. What that means for us projects it into the future. And as the future unfolds, our awareness of the significance of that develops and it grows and it compounds geometrically what it means to be called and to live as a child of the living God. The text, in a very apparent way, hammers home the present reality that we are God's children. On one level, that should be obvious to us, but On another level, the level where we live from day to day, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we don't realize, we don't grasp our identity as children of God. We don't act like it. It's easy to allow ourselves to become selfish and resentful and bitter. And then our words and our attitudes and our actions don't give a very clear indication of who we are. And who we belong to. And who our father really is. Who our father really is. A Presbyterian pastor. This is an old story. It's one of those that I've kept around. Sometimes I'm not sure why. But let me just just share it with you. Presbyterian pastor walking down the street one day in the town where he served a local church there. And there were a couple of teenage boys that were just really giving him down in the country, really giving him a hard time. And one of them says, Pastor, have you heard? We just heard the devil has died. And they nodded their heads like it was true. But they had met their match. The pastor said, well, if that's the case, 
I need to hurry on down to the church building and pray for two fatherless boys. <laughs> Who is our father? Do we? How do we live out our lives as, as children of God? The passage continues. The reason why the world doesn't know us is because it doesn't know God. My question then at this point is, can the world look at us and the way we carry on and the way we live our lives, can the world look at us and know who our Father really is? And then there's another story I, I like about a proud father had a brand new baby boy. And this was in the day when they didn't bring the babies to the room quite so quickly, but in the nursery behind the glass. And the preacher came to visit this family, and the father said, Preacher, you just got to come down here and look in this nursery, and let me show you who my, who my child is. I think it's the most beautiful, handsome baby that has ever been born, just a magnificent child. And he went on and on and on. And when the preacher got down there and looked through the glass and saw the baby, he thought to himself, mm, I think maybe this dad's exaggerating a little bit. Maybe that's not the prettiest baby that's ever been born. But all the while, the father just kept asking him, isn't he grand isn't he magnificent isn't that the most handsome baby ever and finally the pastor in a moment of wisdom said he looks just like his father (laughs) verse two beloved we are God's children now William Barclay makes an interesting point in regard to all this. He says that by nature a human is the creature of God, but it is by grace that we become a child of God. And then he talks about the difference between paternity and fatherhood. Paternity describes a relationship in which a man is responsible for the physical existence of a child. Fatherhood describes an intimate, loving relationship. In the sense of paternity, all people are children of God. But only when God makes his gracious approach and people respond do they become children of God. That's Barclay's thought. Something worth thinking about. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but when he appears, we shall be like him. We'll we'll see him as he is. When Christ appears in glory, we shall be like him. John must have had the creation account in mind when he talked about this. When he wrote the words, that account states that humans were made in the image and in the likeness of God. I believe Andrew's term on sunrise service when he preached was original goodness, created in the image of God. But sometimes we fall short of that destiny. And we don't live up to that calling. And things get in the way. And we become broken and hurtful and wounded. It's John's belief that only through the work of Christ can we reach that full humanity. Can we become the children of God we were created to be. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself as God is pure, purifies himself, herself. So the effect of this vision of the future is that we live into the likeness of God. It's moral purification, the writer says. Moral purity is commonly understood as a prerequisite for seeing God. If you look back at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 8, 
One of the Beatitudes, you remember Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with all folks and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our passage for this morning is brief, but it's a loaded one. And I really would love for us to leave here today thinking about what it means. In what ways do we resemble our Heavenly Father as His children? And what difference does it make whose children we are? Bishop Ernest Fitzgerald, one of my favorite bishops of all my time in ministry. He died a few years ago. Terrific, terrific leader. I remember at pastor school one year, I think he was having a a bad day. He was speaking to us and he said, anybody who wants to be a bishop deserves to be one. But he tells this story. He was driving through North Carolina. It was late one night and his car ran out of gas. And it ran out of gas near a small town where his father used to serve. His father was a pastor in North Carolina. He had not long passed through the intersection, the only intersection in this small town, and the car began to sputter and it conked out and he realized he was out of gas. He was about a mile from the intersection, but he remembered that when he came through town, there was a little store there with gas pumps out front and there was a light on. So he decided to walk all the way back to that little store. And when he got there, he told the man what was going on. And the guy said, well, that that happens around here a good bit. And the man took a gas can and headed out for the pumps to fill it up. And about that time, the bishop realized he didn't have any money. And I think this may have been before every place took a, a credit card. And he told the man, he said, I'm sorry, sir, but I don't have any money with me. I just realized that. And the man set the gas can down and said, I'm sorry, I'm I can't help you. I've been burned too many times before by people who've, who've done this same thing, and I'm, I'm so very sorry. Bishop Fitzgerald said he understood, and he headed back for his car. And then the man hollered out after him, shouted at him. He said, who did you say you were? And when Bishop Fitzgerald told him again, the man asked, did your daddy used to preach around here about 40 years ago? Yes, he did, the bishop said. In that case, come on back and get this can full of gas. Then drive your car up here and I'll fill her up for you. You can pay me later. And he said this. He said, if you're Mr. Jim's boy, you'll be back. Beloved, we are God's children now. It makes a difference who our father is. Now and always. Amen. Mm-hmm.